Romans 8, beginning at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, these are your words. And I pray you would use them, Lord, to to sanctify us, to make us more holy, more like Jesus. And that today, Lord, our response to what you tell us would build the kingdom and change our lives and ultimately, Lord, give you glory. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. This morning we're focused on the very last verses of Romans 8, which is, we've been calling it the spiritual and theological hinge of the book of Romans. And chapter 8 itself is considered to be the spiritual and theological hinge of the entire Bible itself. And the verses we're looking at today are some of the most comforting and assuring verses found in God's Word. And these are words that we need to hear and embrace because life on earth, even for the most dedicated and devoted follower of Jesus, can be at times desperate and painful and numbingly sorrowful. In my research and study to write sermons every week, I always read a number of sermons that have been written by people who I know and I trust and I learn from. And one of the sermons I read this week, based on the text we're looking at today, was preached in a church where a family in the church had just celebrated the birth of a new baby girl on the very same day they suffered the death of their youngest son. As saints who still struggle with remaining sin, who still live in a fallen sinful world, life for us is a strange intermixture of good and bad, of pleasure and pain, of joy and heartache. But the glory of our faith in Jesus Christ is that regardless of the situation or circumstance, everything, everything we go through has great purpose and meaning. As we saw in Romans 8.28, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And so the text we are looking at today will put a massive 
joyful, glorious exclamation mark at the end of that sentence. And that's why we're here today. Now there's a number of ways that this text can be broken down or outlined or taught or explained, but but this morning I'm simply going to walk through these verses one by one in order to honor the text and also in order to honor and let God himself speak through what he inspired Paul to write down for us 2,000 years ago. So we'll start with verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And so the first question is, what things is Paul referring to by these things? Well, since verses 31 to 39 serve as a conclusion to Romans chapter 8, as well as a conclusion to Romans chapters 1 through 8, we could rightly say these things are Paul's teaching about the sinful depravity of human fallen humanity and also the promise of salvation that we can know in Jesus Christ. Those are the two main things that we've seen through these first eight chapters. So in the immediate context of Romans 8, these things are the promise in chapter 8 of no condemnation, the promise of a provision of the Holy Spirit, and the promise of God's sovereignty in salvation. And even more immediate context relationally with this text is Romans 8, 28-30, where these things are God's purposes in the foreknowing and predestining and calling and justifying us so we might be glorified by being conformed in the image of His Son through suffering because we are children of God, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. So there we've got three contexts. It just keeps coming closer and closer together. So then Paul asks, what then shall we say to these things? Now it's significant that Paul's question begs for a response. He didn't ask the question, shall we say something? No, he said, what shall we say? What is our response? And when he asks that question, Paul is also making a statement. And that statement is, divine revelation demands a human response. God has revealed himself over these last, first eight chapters. He's now saying we, we need to respond to that. What then shall we say to these things? And so Paul asks that question, and the first answer Paul tells us is this. What shall we say to these things? God is for us. Amen. Get used to saying amen today. God is for us. Amen. God the Father is for us. And he proved it by sending his only son to die on a cross for us. We see that in that God makes all things work together for good according to his purpose for our good and for his glory. He's for us there. In his person, in his providence, God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul uses the word if here to challenge those that think that God is not for us, which often can happen even to us during times of trial and suffering. We begin to wonder sometimes, is God really for me here? But the apostle's statement does not promise we will always be comfortable or safe. But what God does promise is that while sin and evil 
are still at large in the world and in us, they cannot ultimately prevail or triumph for those who follow Jesus. Regardless of what happens, we win. God is for us. And if God even did permit sin and evil to do their worst to us, all they could do, all they could do is take our physical life because God is for us. Amen. Verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also with him graciously give us all things? So Paul asked, what then should we say to these things? And Paul tells us, Christ died for us. Amen. Pretty weak. Amen. Because Christ died for us when we were still sinners, here's what Paul is saying. Because Christ died for us while we were still sinners, imagine what He will give us now that we are saints. Imagine. If He gave us His only Son when we are sinners, imagine what God will give us now that we're saved, now that we're children of God. Paul uses the word all here twice. And so we need to kind of remember the context of these words to know what he he meant. So first he tells us that God gave up his son for us all. Now Paul wrote this in the context of Romans 8, 28 through 30, where he spoke about the sovereign process of God by which he chooses people to be saved. God calls, God justifies, God glorifies those who he predestined because He foreknew them before the foundation of the world in order that they might be conformed to the image of His Son. And so when Paul writes, God gave Him up for us all, he's not telling us that all people will be saved. He's saying all of those whom God called and justified and glorified. The same context works with the word all when he tells us God will graciously give us all things. All things doesn't mean God will give us everything. It doesn't. But in the context of what we just looked at, all here contextually means all things which are essential to making His purpose and His plan happen ultimately that would ultimately glorify Him. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? He asked the question in verse 33. It is God who justifies. So Paul, in asking what then shall we say about these things, Paul tells us, God has justified us. And to that we say, Amen. To be justified means we are made righteous before God. Satan and the world and even our flesh may accuse us, but before God, Jesus has made us righteous. When God declares us righteous, that never changes. You can never become unrighteous after that. We are righteous before Him. Now our hearts and our lives may wander back and forth between good and bad, between pleasure and pain, between joy and heartache. But our justification before God will not wander with us. It will always stay true and solid. We may even accuse ourselves. We may accuse each other. But in Christ, God will never bring any charge against us because the penalty has been paid. God's decision in this stands forever. He is our justifier and He is the ultimate authority as supreme judge overall. Paul then says in verse 34, ask the question, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, 
who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What then shall we say to these things? Paul says, Christ intercedes for us. Amen. The first verse of Romans 8 already told us this, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. And now we read the four reasons that that's true. Who is to condemn? He said, now we're going to hear the four reasons. The first reason is Jesus gave his life for us. No one can condemn us because Jesus' sacrificial death on a cross paid the price for our sins, period. Secondly, Jesus rose from the dead. No one can condemn us because Christ's resurrection from the dead is evidence that the sacrifice of Christ was accepted by God. Thirdly, Jesus is at the right hand of God. No one can condemn us because Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God, sharing the throne of God as judge and ruler over all the universe. And fourth, Jesus is our intercessor between us and God. No one can condemn us because Jesus is presently, at this very moment, interceding on our behalf. We saw that back in Romans 8.26, that the Spirit himself intercedes for us, even when we can't even think of any words. Paul then asked the question in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul asked the question, what Shall we say to these things? Paul tells us, God loves us. Amen. In Romans 8, 31-34, Paul declared to us that God cannot fail us. But now he asks the question, what happens if we fail God? Are there things that can separate us from the love of Christ? This is where the apostle deals within the last four verses of Romans 8. First of all, we just need to know that if we are truly following Jesus, we will encounter trials, struggles, pain, and suffering. This is the divine promise that Paul spoke of back in Romans 5, verses 3 through 5, when he told us that God does not shelter us from the difficulties of life because we need them for our spiritual growth. Here's what he wrote. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul also spoke of that reality in Romans 8.16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we also might be glorified with him. We see this affirmed again in our context today from Romans 8.28, where God assures us that all the difficulties of life are not against us, but are working for our good and for God's glory. God, through Paul's words, speaks to us now of possible circumstances that could separate us from the love of Christ. 
first one he talks about is tribulation. In, in the Greek, the word means to squeeze, to put under pressure. This is an outward affliction. Things like physical health problems and <clears throat> financial crises. But this is the typical, typical kind of adversity that we experience in life. Tribulation may irritate or fatigue, but it should not separate us from the love of Christ. The stress of life, the stress of tribulation, should not, on everyday life, separate us from the fact that God loves us. Amen? Distress. The, uh, the word here in the Greek speaks about inward pressures or anxieties that come from feeling unloved, unlovely, unintelligent, uncared for, unable to cope with what's going on in your life. God's love holds us up during those times. God's love gives us peace when our situations and circumstances tell us that God's love is a lie. God's love is not a lie. In our distress, he holds us up. Persecution. This word speaks of uh, evil that's inflicted on us because of our relationship with Jesus. Things like derogatory comments, gossip, false rumors, accusations, physical torture, just the whole realm of persecution. Famine or nakedness. The, the two words here are physical evils that deprive one of basic things like shelter and nourishment. The, the suggestion here in the Greek is being vulnerable and unprotected. And danger and sword are kind of violent antagonists here. Danger means the approaching of danger or it means someone who, who's in dire jeopardy. And the sword in the Greek refers to a large dagger that's used by assassins that... Uh, can easily conceal it and just pull it out and stab at will. Now understand, Paul is speaking of real circumstances, real situations. He and others before him had experienced these things for the sake of Christ. And while Paul had already made the point that we will share in the sufferings of Christ, and it's a fundamental part of, of sharing in the glory of Christ, he's also keenly aware that many Christians believe that if God truly loved us, He wouldn't allow us to go through these things. But Paul corrects that notion in verse 36 by quoting Psalm 44, verse 22. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This psalm was written by a psalmist who lamented the defeats of Israel at the hands of pagans and pleaded for the Lord's intervention based on God's promised covenantal faithfulness toward His people. The Israelites had been crushed, literally crushed, even though they had taken up the cause of God in a world that rejected God. But suffering for the cause of God came with the territory back then and still comes with the territory today. Far from being a sign of God's displeasure, brothers and sisters, suffering... For Christ's sake is a sign that we belong to Him. Suffering for Christ's sake is a sign that we belong to Him. If we are following Jesus, we will be considered to be sheep to be slaughtered. Because Jesus was, in the words of Isaiah 53.7, the Lamb that was led to slaughter. As followers of Jesus, and as a body of Christ, we personify Jesus' sufferings when we live for the sake of Jesus in a broken 
fallen world that desperately needs to see the love of Christ in us and through us. What the world needs to see is that God loves us in the midst of that, in the way that we love Him and the way that we love each other as we suffer for His sake. That's why Paul could say, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. It's significant here that God's Word doesn't tell us that the impossible separation is not because of our love for Christ, but of Christ's love for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. All too often our love for Christ is separated from us because we really don't believe God is working all things, both the good and the bad, for our present and future good. And so we allow circumstances and situations and people and things to separate us from the joy that we can know in God because He loves us in Christ. When we take our eyes off of Jesus, we forget that we are to give ourselves fully to Jesus for Jesus' sake as He loved us and fully gave Himself to us. Paul put it this way, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Now this is a paradox, but this is also true. This is how God works. It's all upside down, just the way Jesus did. We save our lives by giving them up. We, we lead by serving others. We conquer people by being conquered. Jesus' death at Calvary seemed to be a defeat, but in God's divine wisdom, it was the perfect plan to defeat sin and evil and death. The problem is we Christians wait often think about victory in terms of winning. We like to think that Christ's power and Christ's purposes are most evident when we win and when we overcome our opponents. Paul simply underscores that with the principle that's governed all throughout the Bible, where it speaks of the reality that God uses apparent defeat to produce ultimate victory. God uses apparent defeat to produce ultimate victory. In the same way, God uses the sufferings of His saints for the sake to make them not just conquerors, but more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors when we are defeated for Jesus' sake. We are more than conquerors when we are victorious through the sufferings and calamities of life. In faith, as we trust in Him during times of struggle, trials, and affliction. The question needs to be asked, if suffering was God's will for His sinless Son, is it not also His will for His sons and daughters? And the very one who is giving us victory is the one who loved us through suffering and death. Our confidence, brothers and sisters, must not end when we begin to step into the tough seasons of life. The testing of our faith begins at that point. And that's when we begin to be shaped more and more like Jesus. Brothers and sisters, it's not enough just to muddle through life merely enduring adversity. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. Amen? 
God does not promise He will take us out of afflictions, but He does promise that we will emerge from those afflictions victorious in the sense, at the very least, that we will grow in our faith and grow in our love and grow in our hope as we become more and more like Jesus in our sufferings, as God's purposes are achieved through us as those in the world see God's grace at work in our lives. Paul writes, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul asks, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul answers, nothing in creation can separate us from the love of Christ. Amen. In these final verses, Paul gives us a list of the dimensions of created things which will not separate us from the love of Jesus. This list is intended to be all-inclusive, and it really is. Neither death nor life can separate us from the love of Christ. For some, death is the dreaded enemy, For others, life is the dreaded enemy and death is the door of escape from life. But Hebrews 2.15 tells us that Jesus came to deliver us from the fear of death, which holds fallen humanity in bondage. Neither death nor life can separate us from Jesus. Neither angels nor rulers can separate us from the love of Christ. Paul is telling us that no one in the entire spectrum of celestial beings, no anyone else on earth who possesses power and authority can separate us from the love of Christ. In speaking of angels, he would be including angelic beings who are fallen, like the devil and demons. Neither things present nor things to come, he says, can separate us from the love of Christ. This category would be speaking in terms of events presently and those to come. For us today, we would think of ISIS in the Middle East. We would think of the deteriorating fabric of the moral uh, fabric of, of North America. But we know, brothers and sisters, no matter what's happening, that God is sovereign. Amen? Which means that He has already mapped out created history from eternity past to eternity forever. Which means in light of Romans 8.28, everything that's happening, everything that's happening, right now as purpose. And that purpose ultimately will be for our good and for His glory. And that's true regardless of whatever happens because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Neither powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of Christ, Paul says. This this height-depth pairing in the context of putting power before it, speaks of maybe some possible far distant menacing power that could surprise us or destroy our faith or separate us from the love of Christ. Paul just simply says that won't happen. There is nothing in all the universe, no power as far as you can go, he says. No matter how high you go up or how deep you go down, you will never find a power that can nullify the omnipotent power of God in his love towards us. The Apostle emphasizes this by saying, nor anything else in all creation. That that covers everything. Nor anything else. 
No thing or person or event or hidden power in all the universe can separate us from Jesus. And that includes ourselves too. For those of us in Christ, the word that Paul wrote, those whom he justified, he glorified, is the radical assurance that we cannot lose our salvation. But that assurance is not that we can forsake our faith and live in sin and still go to heaven. The assurance that God gives us is this, that God keeps his own from ultimate unbelief. God keeps his own from ultimate unbelief. In Jeremiah 32, verses 40-41, we read of God's covenantal promises to his people when he writes, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. That's God's promise to God's people. While there may be times for us of stumblings and wanderings, if we are truly God's, we will be brought back. This is the assurance and confidence that is grounded in the, in the conquering love of God in Jesus Christ that every Christian should possess. This is the design of God that we've seen all throughout the, all the verses in Romans 8 that gives us a deep, firm, unshakable, God-wrought, blood-brought security as we face the wrestling of our remaining sin and our suffering for the cause of Christ, which God's Word tells us is our witness to the world. How we live this out, how we wrestle with this, what, this, what, this, what we do and say and think is our witness to the world as individuals and as a body of Christ. The assurance we have in the conquering love of Jesus is not any eternal security with God that is given to us to add on to our earthly comforts here in life. But rather, this is a promise of eternal security that is designed to free us from our earthly comfort, which then gives us freedom and joy and courage to move forward in fulfilling the mission of God to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love each other, and to love others, and to go and make disciples of all nations, and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to teach them to obey Christ. Because Jesus said, I am with you always. Divine revelation demands a human response. God is for us. Jesus loves us. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus rose from the dead. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. Jesus is at the right hand of God, interceding for us, because when we follow Jesus for the cause of Christ, we will encounter trials and pain and suffering. But God makes all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose, for our good and for His glory. In these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us because nothing else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And may our response to all these things be a massive 
joyful, glorious exclamation mark to the conquering love of God that we have been gracefully given in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Receive God's blessing. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen.